If you're able, would you stand, remain standing and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 as we resume our series on the Ephesian church after the hiatus for uh, our Christmas Advent uh, series. We're going to address one last time the uh, verses 15 through 21 of chapter 5 before Lord willing next week moving to verses 22 through 24. So this is the word of our Lord, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Glorious God, we pray that as we consider this portion, particularly verse 19, that you open our eyes to see glorious things concerning you and concerning your church in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you ask any Christian whether they want to be filled with the Spirit, the answer would certainly be yes. I have not met any Christian who would say, you know what, I'm okay, I don't want to be filled with the Spirit. That's not something for me. And Paul tells us here that we are filled with the Spirit when we sing to God. Singing is such a big part of the life of the church and of being a Christian that I think it uh, warrants our lingering a little longer on verse 19 and taking the time today to consider the place of music in the worship of God and considering what good music is and what our heart attitude toward it and in it should be. And that's our goals for today, to look at music. Music as part of the worship of God and, and indirectly music as part of life in general. This is not going to be a warm and fuzzy sermon. Uh, it, it's going to be an information-driven sermon. That is, uh, uh, you're going to have a lot of things to take with you and to grow in the Lord or confirm your beliefs or challenge you uh, today. But it's not, there's no tear-jerking stories in it. Uh, I might decide to come up with one as we go through, but that's not the, the purpose of this um, sermon today. I really want us to understand why we sing and what we should sing and why we do things the way we do here at this church. The corporate worship of God is one of the most important things we do, if not the most important thing we do on a weekly basis. And an important part of, the worship, of worshiping God together is singing. Now, worshiping and singing are not the same thing. Worshiping is a much bigger category than singing. The church has unhelpfully used the term worship time to refer the singing part of the, ser the service and then whatever else is left. That's not how the Bible sees that. Worship is a much greater category than, uh, than just singing, praying. Everything we do from the call to worship 
to the benediction, all that is worship, not just the singing part of that. And all elements of worship are necessary to be present. Now, what should we sing when we get together to worship God? That's really the question I want to answer today. And I want to answer by first asking another question. We read here in, Psalm, in, in uh, Ephesians 5 verse 19 the following. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So, are we to sing only psalms in the church? Are we only to turn to the Psalter, which is another word to refer to the book of Psalms, and sing those songs that are there already? Now, this issue has been hotly contested in the Reformed Church for a few centuries since the Reformation. The great reformer, Eurich uh, Zwingli, actually believed, even though he was a, an accomplished musician, he believed that no singing should happen in church. Because he was afraid that singing with a, a music in general would appeal to the baser emotions of the human being and would distract them from God. Others have said that no, we should only sing the Psalms. And some see the command here in, or the, the, the command here in, in um, verse 19 to sing, and also in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, as commands to sing Psalms only. And those who suggest that see the three terms used here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as different ways to talk about different parts of the Psalter. Again, the word Psalter is just another way to talk about the book of Acts. So, the, the, <laughs> nope. Some of you pay attention, good. <laughs> It's all by design, right? No, the word salt is another way to talk about the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Uh, so they say, okay, the word psalm refers to some of the psalms. The word hymns refer to another portion of the psalms. And the word song, uh, spiritual psalms refer to other portions of the psalm. The problem with that is that in all of Jewish literature, both in the Old Testament and after the Old Testament, there's no reference to these three divisions of the psalms. Now, for millennia, the people of God have divided the Psalms into different groups, but these three categories are never used to divide the Psalms. In our, in our very Bible, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. We could also divide the Psalm into lament Psalms, or praise Psalms, or imprecatory Psalms, or didactic Psalms, but these three particular categories listed here in Ephesians and Colossians are not used in any way in literature to refer only to the book of Psalms. It is more likely that these words are being used to distinguish among different types of songs, though there isn't a big difference in meaning between the words. Perhaps the suggestion is that the word psalm here in verse 19 refers to, well, the psalms. You don't have to have a seminary degree to figure that one out. And that the word hymns would be referring to songs of praise to God, songs that are sung directly to God about His attributes and so on. And that the word spiritual songs would be 
the, uh, to, to talk about songs that talk about God, to talk about things about God, to talk about prayer, and so on. If you look at our uh, uh, bulletin today, the first song was a psalm, Psalm 98. So that will fit into that first word in verse 19. The second song, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, that has elements of a hymn, and that is, uh, in one of the verses, it's addressed directly to God. And then the, th- the third song, in Christ alone, it will be a spiritual song in this sense, where it's not addressed to God, but it's about God, and we're singing together about some elements of the gospel and so on. So that would be a one way to think of that. Another reason why I don't believe that we should only sing psalms is that the Bible itself has songs outside of the Psalter. We, we just simple eight examples. That's and this is these are, this is not exhaustive. Eight examples of those is that uh, Moses often sung, and we sang. We have that in Exodus chapter fifteen where he sang. We have that in Deuteronomy thirty two where several songs of Moses are recorded. And one thing we have to be careful is that we don't look at narratives that is what, what parts of the Bible that are telling us what happened as normative because. All that a narrative is doing is telling us what happened. It doesn't say that's right or wrong. But these songs that I'm quoting here, these examples, are all bona fide by a stamp of God saying these are good things. So the songs of Moses, the song of Miriam. Remember how Miriam sang in, in, in Exodus 15, rejoicing over uh, coming across the, uh, the Red Sea. Uh, the song of Israel in Numbers uh, 21, where the whole Israel sings uh, of the grace of God in providing water for them. The song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. The song of Solomon, the whole book, the song of, or better yet, the songs of Solomon as a whole book of the Bible. The Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, the Benedictus in Luke chapter 1, and just to, to, to close this, the, these examples, uh, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 says that we're going to sing a new song in heaven, that we do, we, we want, which one would assume would not be in necessarily in uh, the Psalter. So the Bible itself, the saints in the Bible sing songs that weren't psalms as well. And there are other parts of the New Testament that are written in metered form. That is, just to use a simple term, they, they, they rhyme, let's say, or they follow Greek poetry, and they were likely sung in the church. One example of that is the Carmen Christi, the great hymn of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. That was likely a song sung in the church. If you go to the pastoral epistles, you have those five faithful sayings where Paul says, this is a faithful saying. And he lists, those are also metered. They are were likely little songs that were sung in the church to cement what they were saying there. So the Bible does not teach that we should only sing psalms. That's not something that we should limit ourselves to. Though we should sing the psalms because it is one of the words, right? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Evangelical church in general today is not at, in danger of only singing psalms. That's more of a reformed church issue. The evangelical church in general is more at risk of never singing a psalm. And we should sing psalms through the lens of Christ, understanding the meaning there that was pointing to Christ, but we should sing psalms. Now, have you ever thought about the, right, the rightness or the wrongness to, of using instruments in church? Why is it that we use instruments in church? Is that just because um, we can or because it sounds nice or because everybody else does it? Uh, or does the Bible actually teach that we should use instruments in, in, in church? To put it another way, can we use instruments in the corporate worship of God according to the Scriptures? And some Reformed theologians say that since the New Testament says nothing about instruments, 
then we are not supposed to use them in worship. That doesn't fall, doesn't fall under new covenant uh, worship. Um, I think uh, several of you have heard the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Her denomination does not believe that instruments should be used in the worship of God, and only psalms should be sung there. So there are, there are quite a few people, and, and it is from a Scottish tradition, from a Presbyterian tradition, that that has been the case. And this argument is often ba- made or based on Psalm 137. Now, Psalm 137, its claim to fame is that uh, that prayer, the imprecation, that prayer of curse, where it says, happy is the one who bashes their kids against the stones. Right? Not the type of prayer we pray these days anymore. I mean, at least we're not courageous enough to pray the, the, the prayer that the enemies of God will be bashed against the, the stones. But earlier on the Psalms, the Psalm of Lament, and the people of God are lamenting the fact that they've been taken captive to Babylon. And in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 37 says that they just can't sing the songs of Israel anymore. They're so burdened, they're, so, they're mourning being distanced from the temple of God that they can't sing the songs of Israel anymore. So they hung their harps on the willow and that they won't take the harp again till they are restored. And the argument goes that since nowhere else in the Bible says that they picked up the harp again, means that we shouldn't use instruments in singing in the church. Well, there are several problems with that interpretation. Uh, one is it actually misses the context of the psalm, where it says that we'll not use instruments till we are restored. And guess what? The Babylonian captivity ended, and they were restored to Israel. They built a temple again where they could sing and so on. And secondly, Jesus Christ, the ultimate restorer, has come. We all, all believers have been taken out from captivity. They've been freed. So there's no more reason to act as if we are in captivity anymore. And remember, just about this idea, well, this is not mentioned in the New Testament, therefore we shouldn't do it. Remember that God does not have to say something twice before it's true once. That's a bad way to understand the Bible. If he has, it does not go with the idea that if he, haven't repeat, if he hasn't repeated himself in the New Testament, then it's not for us. Now, God is serious about his word. He says it once. He means it unless he tells us somewhere else that we should not do that anymore. So that's the mindset we have to have. Not only that, the Psalms themselves clearly speak of the instruments being used in corporate worship. The, read through the book of Psalms and look at the titles. Often the titles say to be sung on an instrument of 12 strings or with that instrument or the other instrument or read Psalm 150. As every other word is, seems to be an instrument there. And on top of that, the very word psalm, psalmos in Greek means to pluck as in plucking an instrument. So God gave us instruments to help us in singing to Him. But that's what it is. They are helps. Uh, The moment the instrument takes over and is not anymore a help for the congregational singing, but is a detriment, then that that has exceeded its God-given task or place in the worship of God. So we should sing more than psalms, and we should have instruments in in the church, it's the right thing to do. Now, let me give you several general, seven general thoughts on music and worship. And 
uh, when a pastor says this, I'm going to give, give you some general thoughts. It means that he was not able to organize his thoughts in a way that made sense consecutively. So I'm going to give you seven somewhat isolated thoughts that I was not able to organize. And those seven thoughts are going to be followed by four principles that will be followed by eight criteria. So if you like numbers, today is so seven plus four, 11 plus eight, 19. So that's how many points the sermon will have. And we're just beginning, so buckle up, buckle up and uh, here we go. Seven general thoughts on music and worship. One is already said, worship is more than music. Don't think of the other things we're doing here as not worship. Worship is more than music. Secondly, music is not always worship. We may be actually defying God or, or uh, defiling God through our music. Thirdly, music can be a worship. And, and, and that's our goal. And fourthly, music is truly worship when three things are true. First, that is being offered by a Christian. Non-Christian cannot worship God, period. So the only music that's worship of God is the music that's offered by a Christian. Secondly, only when it's offered intentionally. To honor God. We don't accidentally worship God with our music. We intentionally worship God with our music. And thirdly, when it's offered in faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, that in chapter 10, the book of Hebrews says that we draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's the only way that we can uh, come to God. So music is truly worship when is offered by Christians, is offered intentionally, and is offered by faith. Five, music should be worship. That should be our desire, uh, is that all our music is worship to God. And um, sixthly, music heightens the impact of truth upon our hearts. Not only that, music impacts the, impacts the, the uh, music heightens the impact of anything upon our heart. Does it make sense? It's a powerful medium. That's why teachers put the alphabet into song. Right? I think all of us could sing the alphabet. To this day, it is how I remember the Greek alphabet. So I'm here translating Ephesians 5, and I need to figure out a particular word, so I'm going to go to the lexicon, and the lexicon is just a fancy word for dictionary, and all the words are there in alphabetical order, and I have to figure out how far in the book it is. I sing the Greek alphabet in my head. The same with the Hebrew uh, alphabet. Music is powerful and heightens the impact of anything in our hearts. And so that's something that's important for us to remember. Music is a powerful medium. Why is it that... uh, Have you ever stopped to think about the song Imagine? The Beatles song Imagine? Have you ever stopped to think how wicked that song is and yet because the tune is so beautiful and because the poetry is is beautiful we tend to just let it go but that it, it is a wicked wicked imagine when there will be no religion right uh, when there will be no heaven or hell uh, th- those are wicked thoughts and yet that's that's the power of music that we we let those things go and are infiltrated by those things and then seventhly Music invites participation and expression. Music automatically invites others to participate with, with us. 
Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When, often in the Old Testament, at least in the history of David, we have accounts of David starting to sing and play, and then everybody just joining, just can't help but join with, with him. Music helps us together express and evokes our emotions. Just a quick look on the Psalms. You see that, uh, like Psalm 13 that Scott preached on a a month or so ago, where the the, the cry of of the psalmist is there, how long, O Lord? Music in worship is not meant to simply produce an emotional high or to give us a fix, but strong emotions are pleasing to God when they are a response to truth deepened by the, their association with music. So music brings us together, invites us to participate, and in that togetherness, we are to be emotional. We are to express emotions. Now, Jonathan Edwards uh, did not like the word emotions. He used the word affections to talk about our emotions that are response to truth. And he says this, he says, The duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. So in his opinion, music exists in order for us to feel things. And to feel right things in response to the truth that we're singing. Or the truth that we just, just heard. And he continues. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose. And with music. Except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. So as Christians, we should never sing without affections. We should never sing without emotions. Music is given to us to incite together Emotions in response to what God has done for us, in response to what we are singing together. So these are seven general thoughts about music and worship. And as we move on, I wanted to talk about four principles that should help us in choosing what we, we, we sing to be the basis for our choosing what we sing in worship. First one is every aspect of music in the church must be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of music in the church should be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, he gets to tell us everything that we do. So every single aspect should be submitted to Jesus Christ. Not to personal preferences, only on that, but to Jesus Christ. We're not after... The unbeliever, when we're worshiping, we're not after our own pleasure, though if we learn to like what God likes, we will be pleased in what we do. We are after one. The, the, Jesus Christ himself tells the Samaritan woman that there is a seeker out there. One seeker. And that seeker is God himself. And he seeks us to worship him according to his very word. Uh, principle number two, music in the church serves various functions. So you're going to have different times in the, music, in, in, in the life of the church that music will sound differently. And that's okay. Every, we're doing something different on Sunday morning or on, on Sunday of the Lord's Day than we are on a Wednesday night. We're doing something different here this morning than we are at campfire at camp. All that, all that singing in church should be based on the scriptures, should be correct theologically, but the way things are done change according to the context in which we are in. 
This is, we are not here before our buddy. We are not here to have a chat with our bro. We are here worshiping the God of heaven who created all things, in whose hands is the destiny of every soul to ever lived. We are here to worship God, as Psalm 96 says, as we read this morning, the beauty of holiness. So there's a a certain uh, uh, pathos that goes with that. There's a certain way of doing things that goes with that that's different than when we're sitting at the shores of Lake Bitterroot in Montana in the evening singing songs around the campfire. So there's there's a heightened thing that we're doing here on the Lord's Day. So it's okay for music to sound differently at different times in the life of the church. It's appropriate to do that. Principle number three. Our lives are to be characterized by the continuous, continuous worship of God. And in this respect, all music activities for the individual Christians should be in some sense acts of worship. Because all of life is supposed to be worship. Everything about music in our life should also be about worship. This principle dictates not just what we do in church, but also what we do outside of church. What kind of music are we listening to? And can we worship God through what that song is conveying? Can we worship God? Can we say, God, you be glorified in my listening to this song that tells me that I should have sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend? God, are you being glorified when I listen and sing this rap that glorifies violence against women? God, can you be glorified through my enjoyment of imagine? (laughs) Right? Um, That's a a, a principle that we have to keep in mind as we live life. Because music is so powerful and so present in all of our lives. That we have this somewhat subliminal message that comes that we don't even notice. Especially if you have music going all the time around you. The fourth principle is this. Music is to be thoughtful and excellent. These qualities should uh, pervade all areas of musical activity in the church. The scriptures teach that we are to do all things heartily as unto the Lord, and even the most mundane things like eating bread or drinking water is to be done for His glory. So when we apply that to music, we see that we are to present the best possible to the Lord in our singing and in our playing in the church. And we're going to develop that principle more a little more. So I give you seven general thoughts on music and worship, four principles. Now, what should we sing? Now, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What should we sing? Let me give you eight criteria that will help us as a matrix, as a, a, a grid or a lens that we can look at music and figure out what we could sing. And if you're trying to take notes feverishly, all this is posted on our website. You can easily just go there and uh, copy and paste into your notes there. So the first criterion... Our music must be biblical. As our rule of faith in practice, our ultimate rule of faith in practice, the Word of God is our authority, and it contains sufficient principles, examples, and directives to inform us what we should be singing. Music in worship should consider the entirety of the Bible message and the entirety of the, the genres of the Bible and the, the things that the Bible talks about. So music should, in worship should be used as praise, as prayer, as proclamation, as lament. All those emotions, the, the, the entire range of affections should be part of our biblical 
music selection, not necessarily every song, but of the church hymnal, let's say, the collection of songs that we sing. And although there are distinctions in these ways, the music ministry shares similar roles and goals as a pulpit ministry. And sometimes we don't think about that. We are very careful about what's preached from a pulpit, but we tend not to be as careful about what's sung in the church. And the standard should be the same for both of them. There, and just because in our hymnal doesn't mean that uh, it's, it's good. Uh, with you, I, I think a lot of us love hymn 455. You know what hymn 455 in our hymnal is? And can it be? No. Remember what the, how the refrain goes? Huh? Yeah. There says that thou, my God, shouldst die, die for me. And every time the church sings that song, the bodies of all the representatives that went to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 turn in their graves because God doesn't die. Was Jesus in his human nature that died, but we don't even think about it because it's such a powerful hymn. Uh, easily fixed. Replace the word God with the word Lord. And we are good to go on that one. But that's an example where we don't pay close attention to what we are singing as we do with what we are preaching. So it must be biblical in all that we do. Um, and the sung text... What we sing should not conflict with the teachings of the scriptures. And scriptures themselves are the best text for our hymns. Psalm 119 verse 54 says, Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Song uh, criteria number two is looking at songs. Is this a good song of worship? Well, is it God-centered? Is it God-centered? Or is it all about you? How many times the word I is used in that song referring to you? Right? Uh, that's one way to think about it. Uh, we should be focused on God as we do that. And the song should not be a song that you can sing to somebody else. If, you can, if there is a song that's deemed to be supposedly a Christian song, a song of worship, and yet you can sing to your spouse without changing any of the words... It's not a good song. It's not a good song of worship because it's really not God-centered because there's no way that any of us can stand in the place of God. right? So there's no way that a song that's meant to exalt God can be sung to one of us. Principle uh, criterion number three, is it excellent? Excellence is an attribute of God. Remember how Psalm 8 begins? O Lord, our Lord, how... Excellent. Some churches have majestic, but it's better. Excellent is your name in all the earth. So the songs sung to him must be excellent. We should offer him the best we can and nothing less. And it has to do with everything about music. The melody, the harmony, the rhythm, the form, the text, which will be judged by the highest standards of good music. That's one of the reasons why we don't... Uh, we don't um, sing what I call off-the-wall stuff, that we don't sing projections on the wall because we can't put the music on the wall. We, you know, you go through great planes to always print. We pay uh, good money to, in order to be able to print music on, in the bulletin. We have hymnals because 
even if you don't have a music theory class, after years of using these things, you know, okay, these dots make sense. If the dots go up on the line, then I'm going to rise my will go with it as well. If the dot is filled, then I'm going to go a little faster through that dot. If the dot has a tail, then I'm going to go even faster through that dot. And if it's empty, there's nothing in the middle, I'm going to slow down. Or if there's another dot next to the dot, then I'm going to... So we, we learn to be better at singing. And we should be trying that all the time. We should be trying to sing in parts. We should be trying to harmonize. We should be trying all these things. At the same time, excellence is going to be different from person to person. My excellent is way less excellent than the rest of my family. My family is way excellenter in their the singing than I am, in their music ability than I am. And yet, you know, myself and others who are in the same boat as I will continue to work at improving. How often do we practice to come to the worship of God? Not very often, do we? At home, okay. Well, that's practice so that we can get better at singing. That's something that we are to do as the Church of Jesus Christ so that we are more and more growing in excellence in our singing. Criterion number four, singing the church, a song has to be of the Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, our efforts is meaningless. Remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well? God is a Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. We have to be careful that as we sing, that we don't get so caught up in the singing itself that we forget that we're singing to God and instead of just singing to ourselves. We have to be spiritually filled to always be, be considering God in what we sing. Uh, number five, it has to be done in truth. And the idea here is genuine. When you think of in truth in the statement, in spirit, in truth is being genuine. Truthfulness in worship refers to the actions we take, the attitudes of our hearts and the intentions of our hearts. There should be, they should align with biblical teaching. Our music offerings should be genuine and offered the best of one's ability. Are you thinking about what you're singing? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, that he wants to pray with his heart and with his mind. He wants to sing with his heart and with his mind. Are you sing, thinking about what you're singing, or are you just babbling? Uh, 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 Matthew 6, 7, talking about prayer, and singing is often about prayer. He says, don't just repeat yourself. Don't just go on repeating mindlessly, thinking that somehow that's going to praise God. And yet, the Church of Jesus Christ, they seems to not have that verse in their Bible, because, you know, let's repeat the refrain 50,001 times because somehow the Spirit is going to work through that mindless repetition and we end up sounding like a Buddhist priest at a Buddhist temple who is just mindlessly repeating things and spinning the wheels as if that is going to do something for God. And that, that's the next thing. It must be meaningful. Our music offering must be intentional and have purpose and have to be meaningful to us as we sing. And they should not be commonplace or mechanical when we're singing. And that's why the pastor really should be the one either choosing or leading the choosing of the songs that are sung because he is the main teacher of the church. He's the one who is making sure that these things are taking place. Usually he's the one who is the, the, has received the most theological training and is able to go through those, those things as well. And then it should be of the people. Good 
singing, worship singing, is done by the congregation. And that's how we practice it here. You notice when our choir sings, it's either before the call to worship or after the call to worship. The choir is great to lead us into worship and so on. But ultimately, singing is by the congregation. Paul says, sing to one another or speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then lastly, does this song express the right affections? Is this song a response to the truth of the gospel? And is, does it, is it going to be a means to help the people of God express that, that affection? And the whole range of affection, from despair to great joy, though as a church we need to always be moving towards joy, but the whole, meaning, the whole broad range of affection, of emotion, should be present in our singing. I mentioned before uh, Dr. Carl Truman, who, by the way, should be preaching here in April, uh, first, second Sunday of April, uh, wrote a, an article that said that the, the title by itself is worth the article, What Should Miserable Christians Sing? You know what? Not everybody comes to church happy. As a matter of fact, I would say that most, uh, a lot of people, I don't say most, but a lot of people don't come to church ready to sing a slappy, happy, like, uh, uh, joy in my heart, joy in my heart, where? Sort of, of song. And yet we are to sing together. And the Bible gives us that, the, the words to express even those, uh, those affections. So people of God, music is important. How do we do it is important. The Bible has no category for a Christian who doesn't sing. That doesn't exist. At least in the Bible. Uh, people do that. Christian, people claim to be Christians and they refuse to sing in the corporate worship of God. But it, that category doesn't exist in the Bible. A Christian is a singing person, even if they're singing about their miseries. As a matter of fact, Psalm 40, which is the prototypical uh, example of a conversion, starts by saying that, the Christian, the, the, the person who is about to be regenerated is found in the bottom, the miry pit. And God sovereignly comes and takes him out of the miry pit, puts him on the rock. And what does he do? And gives him a new song. That's the description of the Christian. So, in heaven, heaven is portrayed as a place of a lot of singing. So if you don't like singing, you're probably not going to like heaven. You're probably not going to like eternal life <laughs> either because that's intrinsic to being a follower of Jesus Christ. So let us sing. Let us sing the way God wants us to sing so that He can be magnified in our singing. Let us worship God with our singing from the heart, a heart that responds to truth and comes before Him knowing that He is a God, Almighty, Savior of mankind. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of music. Thank you that we can enjoy it. And we pray that we would enjoy it rightly and use it rightly for your glory. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.